Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. Um, so the next session is When Freelance Goes Foreign Correspondent. Um, our moderator today is Mark Willisey, um, and he'll introduce the rest of the panel if you guys want to come up and take a seat. Well, hello, everyone. I trust you're all well, and thanks for coming along. I suppose, like the last uh, panel, I'd prefer not to read from a script, but to let uh, this august panel here tell everyone a bit about themselves. I'll just say who's here. We've got Ed Giles. We have Cindy Wachner and Tim Page. And Ed, if we start at the edge there, can you just fill everyone in a bit, a, a bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Um, I'm, I guess, a freelance multimedia journalist because I shoot video and I work with photography and I write. Um, I was based in Egypt and covered uh, a lot of events in the Middle East from 2011 till 2014, and I travelled quite a bit and worked periodically in the region for a few years before that. Uh, and I'm now based in Melbourne, um, working on a PhD at Monash University and working for the ABC's uh, The World program down there. Um, yeah, that's me, I guess. Yeah. And Cindy? Okay. Um, I currently work for News Corporation Newspapers, uh, based here in Brisbane. I'm an international correspondent. Uh, for seven years, seven and a half years prior to that, I lived in Indonesia and worked there. Um, ostensibly, I went over as a freelancer. Um, a lot of things happened there when I was there, so I was very, very lucky. Uh, then I uh, went from there to Nigeria for a couple of years, where I worked also as a freelancer before coming back to Australia. So um, now I still cover a lot of Indonesia from here, so I go backwards and forwards all the time. And Tim? I've been in this game now for 51 years. Um, I started in Southeast Asia and Laos, then went to Vietnam. Um, was very badly wounded in Vietnam, which is a lot of why we're here today to talk about insurance and who's going to take care of us if something happens in a conflict zone. Um, since the war in Vietnam, it took me 10 years to recover. And I lived in the States, and I moved back to Europe and Britain. I'm a freelance and I've done, I've been the author, photographer in 10 separate books and done about six, seven documentaries and movies. Um, and I'm still trying to earn a crust as a freelancer and travel probably out of Australia four or five times a year on assignments or exhibitions overseas. So you we're here today, obviously, to talk about freelancing, but with our panel here, what you're going to get is a, a really good insight into the challenges um, and the rewards, I suppose, uh, of being a freelancer in an international environment. And the guys here, as you've heard, have got uh, many years' experience, decades of experience. So I suppose we should start with how the hell do you start? Um, obviously, being a freelancer and heading overseas is a lot more challenging than just sort of heading down the street and reporting on a fire in a building. So let's start, I suppose, Tim, with you. Um, as you say, for 51 years you've been doing this job. What are the fundamentals? What are you got to do? You're, you're packing to do a job. What happens? Who was it that said that you make your own luck? <clears throat> The problem with this business is it's now become an overcrowded business. 
everybody who has an iPhone thinks they can be a photojournalist. Anybody with an iPad can be a television journalist. It's as cheap as chips. People imagine that somehow they're going to go through school, go through university, get a degree in photography and communications, and very soon after that, somebody's going to hand them a job. After six months on a job, they expect to be the editor or to be the overseas correspondent for a major paper. It doesn't happen that way. Occasionally, it might happen that way. The best thing to do is to go and find yourself a part of this world, learn the foreign language, learn the local cultures, learn the local economics and the local politics. Eventually, the proverbial ordure will hit the rotating blades, the ship will hit the fan, and you'll be in the prime pole position to be employed or be taken on for a short spasm as a stringer or as a freelancer, you know, to, to maybe even just as a driver and a, a fixer and a helper, which is actually more important actually doing the job these days. And then with a bit of luck, you'll be in a, the right place at the wrong time, the wrong place at the right time, and get a really good snap make a good frame and somebody will pick that picture up and run with it and with a bit of luck it'll be on the front page of some place that can then offer you a better gig the next time the proverbial audio hits the rotating blades and this is the way to get on the bus when it's still moving to sit around and wait especially in Australia where the amount of media to actually publish in and hope that somebody's going to give you a good gig to go someplace, you're dreaming, dark, you're dreaming. It might happen. But you do far better to go off there. You do far better to flick the university, go traveling. I think the best education to, in my, I mean, I never finished school. I finished school, I didn't finish university. The best education is the road. The road is where you learn. You learn about yourself and you learn about where you are. So go on the road and get lucky, is my best advice. Do you get lucky, Cindy, when you hit the road? I do. <laughs> I did, actually. You're um, beautiful. <laughs> um, I, was, I was working on staff for News Limited papers. I was working at the Daily Telegraph in Sydney. And what happened, my story is that uh, after the first Bali bombing, I was sent there to cover the, the first bombing on staff, came back to Australia. Then I thought, you know what? I just want to go there to Indonesia and I want to work there. Um, so I went into the editor, I gave him my resignation and I said, don't talk me out of it because I'm going anyway. So I resigned, um, got on the next plane, took one suitcase of staff, went to Indonesia and, and I did get lucky because about a couple of weeks, not that long after I got there, someone called Chappelle Corby got arrested. Uh, News Corp didn't have a bureau there, they had no reporters there. Uh, not long after that, the tsunami happened in Aceh. 
Um, so I went to the airport and I begged the Indonesian TNI to let me get on a Hercules aid flight to get straight in there as soon as it happened. Um, and then, of course, you know, a lot of stories happened after that. The Bali 9 got arrested, there was more bombings, there was more terrorist attacks, there was earthquakes. And so for, I think, seven, I think I was there seven and a half years, eight years or something, and literally I was busy seven days a week for the entire time I was there. So I did, I did get lucky, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I loved it, loved every day of it. Um, and loved the place, and, and I think I'm, I had a great fixer, I had great drivers, I had some fantastic staff, and you know, we, we really did have a great time for eight years. So, and, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of romanticism attached with travelling the world, being a freelancer. Obviously, you know, we've all read, or most of us have probably read wide, wide, widely about Tim's experiences in Southeast Asia, and there seemed to be this romanticism about covering wars and conflicts. Ed, what drew you in to the whole idea of becoming a freelancer, basically flipping that coin in the air and saying, let's see how the luck goes? Uh, well, I mean, I'd, I'd been fascinated by the Middle East since high school, and I did. Middle Eastern history at high school, and I did a lot of sort of related stuff at uni. Um, so it was always somewhere that I wanted to be doing stories in and working from and covering and documenting things. Um, and as I said before, I'd done a few kind of trips where I'd gone over to the region for a couple of months and produced some work and sold it to someone, whether it was in Australia or overseas. And then when it all kicked off at the beginning of 2011 in Egypt and Tunisia, I was working on ABC News 24. I was one of the people on the team that launched the channel and I was producing bulletins and I remember sitting in the studio and watching the live feeds from Reuters and AP come in from Cairo and just being, I'm in the wrong country. So, you know, I, it took me a couple of months to stash a bit more cash and, and get on a plane, but I went over um, and based myself in Cairo for a few years. But I already had a pretty good understanding of, you know, the story because I'd been following it closely and reporting on elements of it across the region for a few years. Um, I had some really good contacts in Cairo from having been in the region before. I speak a bit of Arabic, I can get around. Um, so I didn't hit the ground absolutely cold. I sort of had a, a, a you know, one foot in, I guess, in a door already. Uh, and then for the first six months to a year I was there, I was just selling stuff to Australia. Um, oh no, about six months after I arrived, I made a trip to London and went and visited a bunch of editors in London um, at different papers and agencies and channels with various parts of my picture or video or written portfolio and um, from then started picking up more work with um, Getty Images and The Guardian and The Economist and other people and, it, and then just sort of grew from there. Was it a cutthroat way of dealing with things? You know, this is a dog-eat-dog -dog world journalism at its best, but when you're a freelancer, you know, you're in with the big dogs there, aren't you? Uh, yeah, and especially in the Middle East. I mean, it's really like... Um, you know, I mean, there's so much news coming out of there. It's, they're very hard topics. Um, and, and a lot of the world's best journalists are working in the region. So you, you do have a lot of competition. But there's also, especially among the freelance community and even among the staffers, like, who I got to know during my time in Cairo and in the region, there's a lot of camaraderie. People are very supportive. And I guess um, as a community of journalists, feel, they feel very much like they're up against it because you kind of are whether it's um, the story itself or governments or other non-government groups who might sort of have, not have your interests at heart. So um, journalists in the region, in my experience, really stick together and um, very much support each other, share information, not always share contacts with editors. That's a bit of a faux pas, really, to hit up someone for an editor contact unless you know them very well. But particularly with stories and safety information and stuff like that, people are very sharing. And, and Tim, did you find that 
there was a greater camaraderie amongst the freelancers when you were in Southeast Asia, for example, or more so than the staff journalists? Or? I suppose the weirdos always hung together. <clears throat> and you've got to be a bit weird to be a freelance photographer. I mean, it's, you know, you, it's, you're running on a smell of an oily rag. Um, you develop strange after-hours habits to sex and drugs and rock and roll. You have a certain paniche which you have to somehow maintain. Um, you have to basically hang with the other, with the similar mob, simply because it's about what we're getting paid, day rates. It's about who is actually buying, who's giving assignments. Quite often, I mean, in Vietnam, it was a, it was a bit more kind of heavily covered than anywhere else. But if somebody was out of town, it meant that I mean, if, if a well-known, like a black star photographer was out of town, like Dick Swanson, it meant that I could get more work from Time magazine. So you kind of form a, an alliance with the other, the other freelance mates that if somebody has New York Times, Washington Post, has one of the majors, you'll pass the work on to somebody you know and I think that's, that's kind of, yeah, you'll, you'll go out of your way to beat them, but you won't go out of the way to not carry their film back to London or not help with their issues and give them a place to crash or if they're out of money, you'll give them that, or you'll give them a film or a flashcard. That, that camaraderie exists very much like diggers in, a, in, a, in an Australian army unit, in a sense. We are a few and we are pecuniary. And so I think we tend to hang together. And we're considered the wackos, which is okay. I don't mind being wacko. In fact, I think I, I wear it like a medal in a certain sense. Well, Cindy, you've freelanced in Asia and Africa. You know, sort of off the beaten track a bit, if you like. Give me an idea of what you stuff into your kit. You're heading out on, on an assignment. You know, you've got to be pretty precise about what you pack. You can't overpack. What are your essentials? Yeah. Um, well, for me, um, some hand wipes and some uh, antiseptic hand um, gel stuff. Um, certainly that's the first thing I always put in. Uh, and, of course, the medication, so the obvious, um, the obvious stomach bug medication, the obvious headache pill, so obvious kind of first aid little... Tra first aid, a travel first aid kit that you get from any travel first aid place. Certainly you need that. Um, in my case, uh, you... Um, notebook, pen and uh, dictaphone or whatever you use. These days you, your iPhone can do all of those things, so take that. Um, but when I, um, when, I was in a, when I was in Indonesia and I went up to cover the tsunami in Aceh, I literally went up the day after it happened. And, and because I went on an Indonesian uh, Hercules, it was an aid flight, it was full of doctors, nurses and boxes of noodles, so there was barely any room for anything. And basically they said to us, you can't take hardly anything, you can't take a bag can literally take one little bag like your handbag and that's it there's no room so I went up there not and, and bearing in mind this was without any idea of what 
was what actually the reality on the ground was. We had no idea because there'd really been no reporting out of there yet. So I had, I had my handbag and in it I had like a packet of hand wipes, um, a thing of contact lens solution and literally that was it. I didn't, I, did, I didn't have anything and a couple of bottles of water. And when we got there, of course, the, com- the place had been completely decimated. So you, I operated on my little, out of my little handbag, you know, a mobile phone. Well, in the first few days, even that was pretty much useless because the whole phone system was down. Um, and in those days, I'd only just started as a freelancer. So I found myself in a disaster zone with a mobile phone that didn't really operate because the system was down. The only thing that was operating were satellite phones. Of course, I'd only just started. I didn't have one. And I hadn't foreseen the need at that point to have one until I got there and then I went, OK, how am I going to file? So, of course, and this is where the camaraderie and the helping each other out comes into it. And a very, very good friend of mine who was a journalist who was on staff, um, I won't say who for, but who had a satellite phone, very, very kindly allowed me to use his satellite phone every time I needed to file. Uh, So in that sense, you do have to have a very good relationship with other people um, until I was able to then, you know, organise to get a satellite phone brought to me. So, you know... There are some things, and I would say a satellite phone these days is, is pretty essential. I mean, after that, after that tsunami, I went straight out and used my money from that job and bought a satellite phone. That was my first thing I spent my money on. I think you forgot a bottle of scotch in your kit. That always comes in handy. <laughs> um, Ed, for freelancers, do you guys operate a little bit without a safety net compared to staff journalists? Like, you take Egypt, for example. Yeah. Uh, we had an ABC crew attacked over there. Uh, passport stolen, beaten up badly, but they were they were taken care of immediately with the ABC, the embassy. Um, do you find that when you're out in some of these places in the Middle East where you've operated, that wow, you know, if I go missing for a day or two, it may take that while, that that length of time before anyone notices I'm gone. Yeah, you've, you've it's. I mean, look, the stakes are pretty high. Um, you've, you're walking a pretty you know thin sheet of ice on a lot of stories you'll cover, especially in the Middle East. Even like just considering the elevated kidnap risk now compared to three years ago or even 18 months ago in most places. Um, so, yeah, you, it's... yeah, it's not You can't a, afford a security game. team half the time like a no. lot of these staff organisations. No, you can't. You might be on assignment with somebody who is. You know, I, I did some work for the Financial Times in Libya um, and we had security for that job, but that was because the paper, the news, the magazine was willing to pay for it and they also covered insurance, so that was a really good example of a freelance job that like where I felt like I was being taken care of, but there's plenty of assignments for people who I won't name who weren't willing to pay for insurance or certainly would never have considered funding security, um, that kind of thing. So that's sort of, again, where the, where the local networks come in, where the networks with other freelancers come in who will help you share information about security um, and also getting to know people at the embassy, you know, like when you if you decide you're going to go and be based in Delhi or Cairo or Beirut or whatever... The week you get there, go and meet with the embassy, set up a meeting, say hi, shake hands, keep in contact with them every time the situation kicks off, send them an email, see if they can offer you any extra security advice. Um, more often than not, they'll be very circumspect and won't give you anything other than what's in the travel advice, but they might give you something here and there. Um, and then if something does go wrong, you're on their radar, they know who you are, they know you've been there for a while, especially if you've been there a little while and nothing's gone wrong for quite a while, then they know you're not a dodgy operator um, and they're more 
maybe not more likely to be able to help you out, but certainly those personal relationships go a really long way when the proverbial hits the fan. Um, as a freelancer, you are really out on that limb, though. Um, but having said that, you know, if, if you've got like a, a staffer for the AP and a freelancer for someone, and they're both in both in Gaza and they both get kidnapped, they're still both they're still both disappearing down a hole. Um, but the AP is a global organisation with lots of money behind it, lots of political connections that can kick a ball rolling to look for that individual quite quickly. Whereas the freelancer, unless they've set up check-in points with a group of friends or with their editor or you know various sort of safety steps that you can set up, um, they're you know, they're going to be pretty hard to find. Um, and it might be quite a while before somebody goes looking. So you really want to set up um, systems where if you go missing for whether it's an hour or a day, you haven't checked in, then somebody sets the alarm bell off, I guess. And Tim, we're seeing increasingly big media organisations tending to pull out of dangerous situations these days, aren't we? You know, whether it's Iraq or Syria. They turn to freelancers. Do, do freelancers get exploited a lot more than they used to, do you think? I think, yeah, I think definitely they do, um, because I mean, because it's because people are so hungry to be there, they're more willing to take chances than and go in to get the story where the big organisations have pulled people out. So I think definitely that's right. I think some organisations in more recent times, I think like for example the Guardian now, um, doesn't take stuff from certain areas of Syria because for that very reason, that it means people without any protection, without any of those safety nets around them are taking huge risks. So I think there are a lot of organisations who are trying to say, well, we don't think anyone should take that risk so we won't, we won't buy anyone's pictures out of there. Yeah, Tim, have right. you noticed that? Have you noticed the I mean, increasing exploitation? I think it's... I mean, I've noticed it especially since the Balkans, Bosnia. Mm. The Balkans crisis was a hitchhike, a bus ride, a train ride, a very short plane ride from the major capitals of Europe. I mean, Paris, London, wherever. So freelancers flocked to the Balkans and in the first three weeks, three months of the war in eastern Slavonia, in, in Vukovar, and when it started to break in Sarajevo, we took more casualties than have happened in recently in places like Syria. It, I mean, the casualties, there was something like 30 people killed in the first six months. And because there were so many people down there, the rates, the page rates started to drop. So instead of getting you know, four or five hundred quid a page, you're getting two hundred quid a page. More people force the rates down. It doesn't make, doesn't put, it, put the rates up. In Vietnam, it would have put it up, but times have changed. Everybody wants to get their foot in the door, wants to get recognized. So they're prepared to go down there and make, and I remember talking to Ed after he'd come back from Cairo, he had made 250 euros and had three covers on major newspapers. And there's, there's no money in the business anymore. It's been really dumbed and, and cut back and cut down. I mean, even the staff jobs at something like AP and Reuters aren't paying the big 1,200 a week, 1,500 a week anymore. And you might make it up in the insurance and stuff, but it's, it's still not big money. And to get the insurance to go to a place like Bosnia, 
If you approach Lloyd's of London, they're going to quote you a thousand a week. And you're not going to get accreditation with something like NATO or <clears throat> IFO, or whichever the organization is that's running the military operations on the ground, unless you've got the insurance. And often you can't get the insurance now unless you've done the hostile environmental training courses. Now, I mean, I look, at, I look in this room with a lot of young people, okay, I mean, it's all good. How are they going to come up with 5K to pay for an environmental training course? Well, there are, there are increasingly options for freelancers. Um, hostile environment training, if you were to pay the ticket price, is really expensive, like three to $5,000. Um, I was really lucky. I had a bursary from the Rory Peck Trust to do hostile environment training, and I did a course in Lebanon. And the course didn't cover the whole fee, but uh, I think including my airfares from Cairo to Beirut, I think I paid about a thousand bucks. So that was still quite a bit of money, but it wasn't that much, so I could afford it. And that was really useful. Like I learned so much during that course. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of cynicism around whether or not journalists need to be taught how to be in hostile environments. Journalists definitely need to be taught how to be in a hostile environment. Mm -hmm. It's a world that we just don't know anything about until you experience it. You know. Um, there's also uh, an organisation called RISC, R-A-S-C, which is Reporters Instructed in Saving Colleagues, and they run free hostile environment training. Um, it's not as sort of broad, you know, broad as most HET courses because you don't do a lot of kidnap training and stuff. It's basically just combat medical, but that in itself is worth a lot. So young freelancers who, you know, you can apply to RISC if you've got some experience and you're living in a region or you're <coughs> intending to travel to a region where you'll be based at you might need the training, you can put your name in and then it's sort of a first comes first serve basis and they run courses periodically. Um, you have to pay for yourself to get there but they run the training for free. And then uh, I was a, a, one of the founding members of a group called the Frontline Freelance Register um, and when I took a full-time contract at the ABC last year I had to step off the board but uh, FFR is also working towards sort of subsidised HET training. So. There is, you know, it's taken some years to get there, but the freelance community and various organisations around freelance community are taking up that slack or working to take up that slack. Um, in Australia, you'd be lucky to get a HET course from anyone for less than five grand, but if you are overseas or you're based overseas or you are living in a place where you're working, then there are options. Um, yeah, but it's... Well, you're talking about the frontline freelance register, which yeah. you help set up, which, you know, according to the brief here, is about supporting the physical and mental well-being of freelance journalist. Do you think, I'll put this to you Cindy, do you think that a lot of freelancers, because they generally gravitate to hot spots, conflict zones, you know a lot's been made of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. in journalists, do you think freelancers sort of slip through the cracks when it comes to either identifying that as a problem, uh, mental issues, and when it comes to treatment as well? Look, I think definitely, because, I mean, if you're on staff at a major organisation, you know, the first thing you get when you come back from a big job or a traumatic job, you know, is the phone call from the, the company psych who wants to have a meeting with you. So, you know, I mean, you know, when I just recently came back from a job, you know, that's the first thing they do is that they're straight onto it. If you're a freelancer, there's nobody out there calling you up saying, look, hey, are you okay? Do you need to see someone? And, you know, in, in the case of people who are on staff, it's not a matter of do you need to see someone, it's you will go and see someone. That's just, you don't have a choice. So I think with freelancers, I mean, there's nobody who's there asking them are they okay. So I think definitely, I mean, 
and particularly people who have been in very traumatic situations, um, even just having someone to talk to, you know, they don't always have that option. And also, to a freelancer, often is think about the next job. You know, where are you going to make the next dollar from? So you don't have time. You suddenly are going from one thing to another. So definitely, that there is a, a certain amount of people who would, who do fall through the cracks. There, yeah. And Tim, you know, you've seen some of the most amazing events of the last 50 years. You've, it's been a privilege, I'm sure, to do that. But are you ever going to re retire on the North Shore of Sydney in your mansion? Is it, is it a game where you're never going to make a decent living? You're dreaming, Dar. You're dreaming. <laughs> um, I've got no savings. I've got half a million negatives to slide, which is my pension. Um, I think the thing to do is to crank into position a good enough library which, if you've got it properly placed and works properly, can give you a, a reasonably small income. The best thing to do is to start writing books, but then books don't make any money anymore. This is a foolish business to be in in this day and age, especially with all these people who can afford more iPhones than I can. When I walked in today and somebody, somebody took a, a slam at my poor little Nokia, until I pointed out it was twin SIM. Only 36 bucks, but it's because <clears throat> you can afford to lose it. I mean, somebody nicked my iPhone and I can't replace it. I've got no insurance. I haven't had, ins I haven't had insurance for the whole of my life. It's a luxury insurance. I mean, you've got to buy it for your car, I admit. But I've, I mean, if this is nicked, I'm buggered. I mean, it's, this, this is, has to be the most foolish business to, to aspire to be in. I mean, once you, when you're doing it and you're off the ground and I suppose you're a bit recognised, then like it, it can get sweet and it can be very comfortable. I mean, ten years ago I was working for Bloomberg for three years and I've never put so much money in the bank and travelled business class up front on the plane of four-star hotels. It lasted, you know, three years and, and you're back to staying in the Y again. It's, I mean, it's, you know... It's, or having lunch at the Y or whatever. But it's, um, on the other hand, when you are freelance, there's a feeling of, I have to say, of freedom, of, I suppose, laziness. You can indulge yourself. You can do exactly what you want. But you've got to have some sort of vague plan about what that is. Where do you want to be a specialist in? I mean, okay, Cindy's plump for Indonesia. I mean, he's gone crazy and wants to join ISIS. But I, can't <laughs> like that. I mean, if he gets inside them and gets those pictures, he'll make a million. He can retire the North Shore in Sydney. I've made a kind of specialty out of Southeast Asia. Even with the internet, how much can you read and how many pictures can you look at in a day, digest, edit in your own head, and use? this much. It's impossible to stay up on, I say stay up, to be informed and to be useful and to be eloquent on more than a couple of subjects. The military might be one, Southeast Asia another, um, Buddhism another. So you stay up on three or four subjects and maybe a couple of languages which are in your zone. But you can't be more informed than that. I mean, it, it, it's impossible. 
I mean, I, whenever I get an assignment, I try to read up and get as much information on it as possible. I think the failing of a lot of photographers is they're not, they don't think they have to do research. They don't think, a lot of photographers believe they can just rock up and snap, snap. You make a much more, inf a much stronger photographer if you read up on the subject. I mean, somebody like Larry Burroughs would sit and read endless books on what he was about to shoot a cultural subject or a military subject. And if you inform yourself, then you see what's going on. You understand the play going on. You understand the illusion, the, the little intricacies happening out there. And that's what makes the core of a good picture, is understanding the background. So you don't waste your time. You actually research. And you ask what we all carry. As Michael Heller, who wrote the book Dispatches, said, always carry a book. Never be seen without a book. You're going to spend more time on your backside at an airport waiting for something to turn up, or waiting for a visa to turn up, if you haven't got a book and a notebook and a pencil, basically, hand in your, your press card and go home. Tim's right about being a specialist. I think that goes to journalism more generally, though, not just, not just if you're a photographer or a videographer or whatever. If you, the way that journalism is going, the way that newspapers especially want their correspondents to kind of be, a, be something that people want to read, someone that people want to follow, that, that will buy the newspaper to read, you know, Ruth Pollard or or watch the ABC to see what Mark Willis has done. Um, you, you really need to be a specialist. And, um, you know, I, a really good example, a really good friend of mine um, who I went to uni with and who's fascinated by China and learnt uh, Mandarin um, from when we were at uni, so like eight or nine, nearly ten years ago. Um, he's 30 and he's just been given a job um, as an ABC China correspondent starting in a few months' time. So those jobs are out there. Um, but, you know, he spent the best part of 10 years at the ABC, being at the ABC, and, and whilst becoming a specialist. So, um, yeah, being, learning about a topic and area, learning the language, learning the culture, learning the politics, um, that's, I think that's, you know, in, invaluable as a journalist generally now. We've, we've talked about the challenges, and, and there are plenty of them for journalism as a whole, but for freelancers, I think there are specific sets of challenges. We'll throw up just some questions in a sec, but I'd like to ask the three of you, maybe starting with you, Cindy, what is the biggest threat to freelance journalists internationally now in terms of, you know, what's the thing that's going to really limit opportunities for people wanting to get out there and do it? I think the fact now that, I mean, literally anybody can be a citizen journalist. Get, get a phone with a camera on it, um, dare I say it, the dreaded iPhone, um, and you don't actually have to be a journalist. You can just be anybody who clicks some images off and sends them off with, and sends a tweet of 140 characters with their take on it. And, you know, as a journalist here, I see that more and more because, you know, I get my editors saying, you know, oh, there's a tweet here about such and such, you know. And it can, it's from somebody who's not a journalist, who doesn't know, it's, it's a total fallacy, but you spend half your day trying to disprove that element. And I think that's the biggest challenge we've got now, is that anybody out there can be a citizen journalist if they want to be. And that, that informa so much information is out there that we spend half our time sifting through it, trying to work out what's true and what's just the, the wheat and the chaff. We just you know? become bogged. Exactly. Yeah. Ed, Ed, what do you think the challenges? News organisations get caught in this trap time and time again. It happened just this week. Um, 
I don't know if any of you saw this Instagram feed from a migrant, an African migrant who was travelling to Spain and he, you know, quote unquote, was Instagramming his journey and the Huffington Post picked it up and they wrote it up like it was a legit thing that was happening and how amazing this was that this guy, this is where we are in the brave new world and, you know, the, the migrant can be Instagramming his journey. It turns out it was a Spanish artist or a media production company basically messing with everyone and um, it took about a week to kind of, you know, fabricate or unfabricate it, you know. Um, so it happens a lot, it, but it is a big problem and, and the, the speed and, you know, cheapness of what is out there, the amount of content that's out there on social media, um, you are battling that as a freelancer. Um, there, I don't know, there's no real solution to that other than just being, being reliable, being credible, knowing your story, getting it right. Um, and being on a story for long enough to become a, become a source, um, because otherwise, yeah, I mean that that's that's how I mean that, that's how these social media phenomenon always get sort of blown up is that someone who's an expert goes like, no, that picture wasn't taken in, you know, Sierra Leone. That picture was taken in Barcelona or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I think you've just got to be onto the story as much as you can. Um, yeah. And, and be a reliable source. Well, Tim, half a century on, after kicking off, what do you see as the biggest threat to what you've done for so long? The biggest disappointment is how, in the early 70s, how television took the high ground <clears throat> and basically killed off the magazine. We used to have <clears throat> a plethora of international, well-illustrated magazines, Life, Look, Sunday Evening Post, da-da, da-da, da-da. These magazines sat around on your coffee table and then ended up in your dunny. They had a, a longer life. Television is so temporal. It's like, it's like the internet. I can't remember what I saw last night. Yeah, I can, but I mean, I can't. It's just, it's too much. We have no time. We don't write letters to each other. We send messages in textees. I don't, I still write postcards, but... We don't communicate like we used to. We expect our information to be packaged in little sound bites. I mean... <clears throat> the people I teach in Vietnam and other places are now being taught to write n no longer than 800 word stories. Anything longer than 800 words, we can't digest it. 600 is good, and we want two pictures to go with it. So it's being dumbed down, it's being dumbed down, and that's hard when you get to be an old codger to accept that it's being that dumbed down. <clears throat> but having said that, I think it's up to everybody who, especially if you want to be a freelancer and you, you don't want to take the man's check, you have to, it's, you're dependent on creating your own style, your own lick. Now, how do you do that? How do you establish that this way, that this phraseology, if you're a scribbler like Cindy, says you? that you've got a Neil Davis personality when it comes to television, that you've got the look of Larry Burroughs or Cutty, I'm not saying Cutty Bresson, but of Don McCullen. It's, you've got a look to your picture. 
And that's what the editor, or what, that's what the publisher is going to buy. Because they're going to buy your style, otherwise you wouldn't have people making 14 bucks a word for the New Yorker, or for Vanity Fair, where it's the top of the post, it's the top of the line. How do you get there, or how do you get published? How do you get a piece on a, a weird and wonderful place? I don't care if it's Egypt, I don't care if it's Indonesia, I don't care if it's Southeast Asia. How do you get that in? I suppose you've got to make it a little bit twisted and different. You've got to put a bit of a lick on it. You've got to put a bit of personality on it. I'm not saying you have to invent that, but you've got to, you've got to build it into something which is a little bit more than just the story. You've got to personalize it. You've got to introduce, in a certain sense, a little bit of selfish attitude that this is my story, this is my report. And how do you how do you how do you do that? I guess that's it's a question of doing it long enough that you start to understand how you do that. And I suppose you need the feedback from your peers as the other thing. And that takes time because how do you develop a relationship with your peers? And we are talking outside about when you get to a new fresh conflict zone or otherwise, who do you approach? How do you get information? How do you get a good driver, a good fixer? How do you get somebody who's going to be your offsider, somebody you can trust to leave your gear in the car and they're not going to nick it, who can find you the right general, the right sergeant major, the right ticket? This is experience, and I think you, you, I don't know, I don't think you can learn this in, in some institution. It's called the institution of life. It's called the road. Um, and I'm not trying to be a snob about that. I think. You can go into, there's no books. Okay, Dan Eldon's book, The Journey is the Destination. Okay, but it's not like an academic book. It doesn't tell you how. It just tells you how he did it himself. And it's about going with your own flow. It's about developing your own in, in, intuitions. That this is a dodgy place. I don't want to go down that road. I'm not going out with this mob because they don't feel good that this bunch of goons with rocks in their hands are going to kill me. This lot might just take me up and feed me and, and, and screw me and have a great time with me, but I'm going to come out looking rosy. And it's <clears throat> how do you build those intuitions and those concepts up in your own head? It, it's just time in the saddle on planet Earth. Um, and I don't know how you, you, can't, you can't blow a it's like blowing a kiss, it doesn't quite land. You, you, <clears throat> it's by hanging, in a certain sense, that you learn that, all that, those ropes. And, I mean, you, you, you can't buy experience, you've just got to live it. Well, let's see if we can, we've got time for a couple of questions. Uh, or by all means, if we can just keep them pretty tight, we'll get as many in as we can. Thank you for the panel so far. It's been incredibly insightful. Um, my question is mainly to Cindy, but the rest of the panel, um, feel free to answer as well. Um, when you've been working or following a story for a very long time, um, around 10 years, um, and that story suddenly comes to an end, I think you might know what I'm talking about. How do you deal with the emotional, pain I guess that comes with that and 
the confusion that will come with that, especially knowing that it's a per such a personal thing, but also a very public thing as well. Okay, we're talking about the Bali Nine. Um, yeah, yeah, it's difficult. I, I, I admit that freely. Um, you know, I was there the day they were arrested in Indonesia. Um, I was there for the whole ten years of their story, and I was there on the night they were executed. Um, and during that ten years, I got to know them very, very well. I mean, I spoke to them on a regular basis. I had a I had ongoing dialogue with them pretty much every day towards the end, uh, and their families as well. So. Um, <laughs> Yeah, at the end, for me, it, it was like it was a very hard story to cover. But at the end of the day, that was my job. I mean, I was employed to cover that story because of my intimate knowledge of it, because of my contacts. And I guess, yeah, it's hard to come back to Australia after they were executed, after 10 years, and sort of go, well, they're gone now, and what do I do? Um, so I, I can't lie and say I haven't suffered a little bit of that. Um, but at the end of the day, that was my job. And, you know, you don't go into the job not expecting to get sometimes to feel, to feel a little bit traumatised by it, I guess. So, um, you know, I just take the view that that was my job. My job was to tell that story. I did it to the best of my ability. Um, and that's what you do. And now I move on to the next story, essentially. Um, not to say that I'll, you know, that... I mean, that story will still go on in some ways, but, I mean, that... I have to move on and do the next story. That's the way it works. That's, that's the job. Well, let's squeeze in another question. Please. Um, Adrian from Fremantle. Uh, could you talk or reflect about ethically how you make sure that you don't perpetuate a problem in a complex situation and that you might even play a part, a little part in creating solutions so that you're not, your reporting isn't part of someone else's bigger story that, that's really not about the realities of the country that you're in and isn't necessarily honouring uh, the complexity of the, that country. Um, it's, a real, it's a real issue, you know, um, and I think any, any form of journalism, particularly forms of journalism that are reporting on uh, a foreign culture or a different culture in a different country, maybe a different language, whatever, I, you know, but even local journalism can suffer from it. Um, I don't think there's any really easy answer to it. Uh, I certainly know, like, from my own work, I didn't necessarily beat myself up, but if I worked really hard on a story and couldn't get it published somewhere, couldn't get it somewhere good, it would, I didn't feel very good about that. But if you're working really hard on a story that you thought was really important and you got it published somewhere important, or you got a picture on the front page of one of the big papers or something like that, or your story led an important bulletin, um, for me, that always felt like those were the places where the people who make decisions are looking. You know, the, the New York Times is on the desk in the White House. The Guardian's on the desk at 10 Downing Street. Now, people watch the 7.30 report who make decisions in Australia. If you're getting your work into those outlets and onto those media, then hopefully something that you've done might have hit a nerve with someone who makes a decision. I mean, we're all important in a democratic context, but the people who make decisions are the ones that can have quick and large impacts. So that was kind of how I always looked at it. And then also in terms of like representing the story fairly, again, research, trying to trying to understand what was really happening, um, which, which you get from living in a country for a while. And that's one of the reasons that people should be based in places for a while, I think, is to really understand the story. And then you're much less prone to making mistakes, cultural faux pas, whatever it is. But yeah, it's a really hard issue. And I think it's 
it's right, it goes right, right to the core of the problems of being a journalist. One more question I think we have time for. Thank you. Um, probably for Ed and Cindy, when you're leaving an employer to go and freelance, did you try and negotiate your terms before you're out the door and then when the shit hits the fan and you're onto something big, um, can you renegotiate? <laughs> I think you can always renegotiate. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, I didn't have... like So I left ABC News 24 and I went over to Egypt. Um, I didn't have any standing agreement, but I did. they did know I was going. You have a relationship with the people on the desk. You can pick up the phone and the EP of the whatever's going on that day will know you personally. That goes a long way. Um, and then the rest is just the sort of quite murky business of freelance journalism, really. I think that's right. And I think, I mean, the same in my case. I, I'd had a long career at News Corporation before I went to Indonesia. So, so, and I went there not knowing that anything was going to happen, thinking, well, if it does, nothing happens, I don't know, I might serve beers in a bar or something. Um, but I'm going to do this. And so I didn't really have any kind of negotiated rate except that, you know, I'll stay in touch if something happens. Well, you know, then I'm down at Denpasar Police Station and this Australian girl called Chappelle Corby kind of gets arrested. And I didn't really have to get in touch because they got in touch with me. So I was very lucky in that sense. Um, and I think, you know, if you keep producing, which then I, I obviously did, you know, I was able to negotiate a reasonably good kind of like return for myself because I was there, I was on the scene, and they didn't have anyone else. So, yeah. Well, thank you all. I think we've hit the target of time. Um, can you please give a, a very warm round of applause to our panel? And thank you all for coming. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.